Clear and Vivid is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Even complex human behaviors are built from simple building blocks that are present in organisms like nematode worms and fruit flies and fish. Now, worms are never going to speak French or play the piano, but there's some basic (laughs) things that a worm has to be able to do that humans do too. Worms experience hunger. Worms get sick. Worms experience stress and aversive conditions. They have to respond to these, and we can use the very simple animal to ask, what are the building blocks that let that happen? You can watch the animal think while it's moving around. I've had a soft spot in my heart for a tiny little worm called C. elegans ever since I first watched them under a microscope. They've been the subjects of thousands of experiments revealing secrets about topics ranging from how the nervous system works to aging. And I'm not just talking about worm secrets, but secrets about ourselves. And of all the scientists fascinated by that little nematode worm, few have been so creative as my guest, Corey Bargman. She's not only revealed many of those secrets in her research, but she also has a wonderful way of explaining them. Her extraordinary talents have led her to heading a scientific effort to conquer all human diseases by the end of the century and to being awarded the 2012 Kavli Prize in Neuroscience. Corey, this is so great that you could be with me today. I'm, I'm, I'm really thrilled to talk to you. Your, your life in science spans so many interests and achievements. You know, you remember that I was there in 2012, the night you were awarded the Kavli Prize in Oslo? Yes, that was a wonderful evening and a celebration of all kinds of science. Every couple of years I've helped the Kavli Prize give out the awards, uh, along with King Harold. He's a nice king, isn't he? (laughs) I don't have a lot to compare it to, but yes, he seemed a very (laughs) gracious person. (laughs) He's he's lovely. He walks among the people, and he's a regular guy. I really admire him. So you you won that night, along with uh, Winfred Denk and Anne Grabiel, for your work on neuronal mechanisms that underlie perception and decision. And that's so interesting to me because 
you have worked so much with C. elegans, the, the microscopic roundworm. I didn't know C. elegans, those little microscopic worms, made decisions. You know, the in when we study simple animals like Cenorhabditis elegans, we can't ascribe to them all of the all of the special abilities and complexities that humans have in their behavior. We don't want to be anthropomorphic, so anthropomorphism is bad. But we can understand that even complex human behaviors are built from single building blocks, from simple building blocks that are present in organisms like nematode worms and fruit flies and fish. So the way that we think about that is that we practice zoomorphism. We think about human behavior as being built from simple animal behaviors. Oh, that's great. Now, worms are never going to speak French or play the piano, but there's some basic (laughs) things that a worm has to be able to do that humans do too. Worms experience hunger. Worms get sick. Worms experience stress and aversive conditions. They have to respond to these, and we can use the very simple animal to ask, what are the building blocks that let that happen? And the simplicity of the animal for anybody who's not up on uh, nematodes, these little worms we're talking about, they they have 302 neurons in their brain. Is that right? That's right. C. elegans is amazing because not only does it have only 302 neurons, it's transparent. So you can look right through it and look at all 302 of those neurons. <laughs> oh, right. And using cool genetic tricks that have been developed in the past few years, you can actually see which of those neurons are active and which ones are quiet. You can watch the animal think while it's moving around. Oh, you make them uh, fluorescent in some way? Exactly. There are special fluorescent. This is, you know, all of biology has these kind of amazing tools that come from different directions. So there's a fluorescent green protein that comes from a jellyfish, that you can take the gene for that and put it inside a worm and make it green fluorescent, make it glow in the dark in green. And then you can modify that fluorescent protein so that it only glows when a nerve cell is active and not when it's not active. It's sensing calcium, which is a molecule nerve cells use to tell themselves that they're active. And now a scientist looking at a worm can see a cell turn bright green when that cell becomes active. This is this just is so exciting to me. I mean, it, 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 to you, it's everyday stuff, but it's just amazing. No, no, no. If, I, if this does not blow your mind, I am not doing a good job of explaining it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, have you had that feeling, I hear from so many scientists, that to know something that is known by a human for the first time is an exhilarating experience. Have you had that? Yes, I have had that sense of seeing something and knowing it for the first time. And I want to say that when that moment came, which was at about 2 in the morning in California, the first thing I wanted to do was to share that knowledge with someone else. Hmm. And it was a problem because I couldn't very well call up the people that I worked with at that hour and wake them up. But very fortunately, my sister Dory at the time was working the night shift. 
doing closed captioning for the hearing impaired. And so I was able to call her up at her office and explain to her that I was sitting and had in front of me the very molecule that allowed worms to smell buttered popcorn. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. (laughs) And nobody else in the world knew such a thing or even knew that they should care about it. Why did you care about it? Why was it so important? I mean, yeah. that, it, it, anything you know about nature that nobody else knows is wonderful. But why did you care? Okay, so the sense of smell was a mystery when I started on studying the sense of smell in worms. And we didn't even know how humans or worms or any animal detected odors in the environment. And thing about the sense of smell is that it's your relationship to other living things. Most odors in the environment are made by other living things. And it's incredibly complex. And humans, and it turns out worms, can smell almost any organic chemical. And they can make very fine distinctions between them. And what we learned about the worms is that they, from their birth, have a very clear set of smells that they like and smells that they don't like. They know what's good and what's bad in their environment. And the smells of bacteria, which are their food, are delicious to them. And then there are certain kinds of toxic chemicals that they avoid. So we set out to just figure out how that worked. And then Piali Sengupta, a postdoc in my lab, found a worm that could smell everything except one thing. It could smell almonds, it could smell fruits, it could smell bananas, but it could not smell buttered popcorn. It could not smell that one buttery smell. All the other worms would go straight to that buttery smell, and that one worm was like, where's the party? I don't understand. (laughs) And so she, using techniques that were still really hard at the time, found the very molecule, the very gene that had been broken in that worm that made it not smell what other worms could smell. And then we put that information together and were able to read off the sequence of that gene, see what kind of protein it made, and realize that that was the protein that was sensing that buttery smell. So the gene was broken for some reason. Well, we broke it. That was the nature. uh, uh, I see, I see. So it was a a systematic process of breaking different genes to see what you could find out about the sense of smell. So what did that teach you then? Once you knew that you had that particular protein that couldn't smell butter, what, what what did you learn from that? So we learned, so from having that one protein, we learned this is the kind of molecule that senses odors. We learned... The molecule is really very strongly tuned to just this one odor and a small number of other related chemicals. It's there are it's like a lock and key mechanism. There are many different locks and different keys. Each odor is a different key that opens a different lock. And then as soon as we had that answer, we're like, okay, we know that now. What's the next question? And having that molecule in our hands let us ask the next question. For us, the next question was, well, why are some odors attractive and other odors repulsive? How do you link Mm. just the ability to smell the odor to the behavior 
that the animal generates. And what we, we were able to use that buttery smell to change the behavior of worms. We were able to take worms that couldn't smell it at all and make them attracted to it, just like their normal siblings were. But we could also take worms that couldn't smell it at all and make them run away from it. Mm. And those experiments led us to a realization that the attractiveness of an odor is determined all the way by the very first sensory cell that recognizes that odor. That it's not a higher order decision made somewhere in the center of the brain. There are cells in the worm that only detect things that are good and other cells that only detect things that are bad. And they send that information in and anything that activates one cell is good and you go to it. And anything that activates the cell right next to it is bad, and you run away from it. It's a hardwired map of the odors. Now, that hardwired map, you might think, well, okay, worms will have a hardwired map. They'll know automatically what's good and what's bad. But afterwards, this principle was shown to apply to many different senses of taste and smell in many different animals. Now, of course, it's leading up to my question about how does it apply to us? Well, babies are born knowing that sweet is good and bitter is bad. Mm. And that's because there are cells in your tongue that sense sweet, and they project to the brain, and they tell the baby, accept this. And there are other cells in the tongue that sense bitter, and they project through multiple connections to the brain, and they say, this is bad, spit it out. Mm. Now, the fact that this is built in And it turns out to be built into other parts of the the sense of taste and smell as well. That doesn't mean that everyone has to like or dislike exactly the same things. I like coffee. I like broccoli. They're pretty bitter. I've, over time, developed an appreciation for bitter things. I've changed my behavior. But when I was a baby, I hated bitter things just like everybody else. And... It's good for a baby to be born knowing what it should eat and what it shouldn't eat. And we see this idea of just being born with certain kinds of natural knowledge about your world explain things like, why don't cats like sweets? Why do, why do panda bears only eat bamboo? They have an mm-hmm. innate genetic knowledge of what they should be eating that helps them make the right decisions from the very beginning. And this is the kind of puzzle that helps you think about how the brain can do the amazing things it does when it's built by DNA, by this just like linear set of instructions. We can start to see how are these instructions being read out? What do they turn into in terms of genes and proteins, in terms of cells, in terms of the connections between cells, and then the behaviors of animals and of people? And that was the reason for going for C. elegans and its 302 neurons. I thought, mm. I don't know how to think about, I, you know, it, understanding human behavior is too hard. I, you know, how do, you know, how do I understand my husband's behavior? How do I understand my <laughs> child's behavior? That is too much for me. How do I understand my own behavior? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. But how do I understand a worm's behavior that I think I can do. And so that's been the, 
that's been the adventure since then is to... It's an interesting and, and daunting task, it seems to me, to go from a preference for sweet, which is a behavior at a basic level, to go from that to why did you, why did you park where you shouldn't have parked? <laughs> Another kind of behavior. It's, it seems like it's, it's a, such a complex question that it can grow into. Do you think eventually we can understand more about complex human behavior through this simple model? I, you know, one of the things that studying a very simple animal has taught me is that even simple animals are not simple and that they can do complicated things, which we can then tease apart and, apart and understand. So, you know, I started by telling you that, that we made a big discovery that the animal knows what's good and what's bad. But if we dive in a little more deeply, we realize that even the simple animal doesn't always think the same things are good and bad. Even this very simple animal changes its behavior based on the context that it finds itself in or its, or mm. its experience. And one of the ways that we studied that is by studying how the animal responds to other animals. So we learned that animals, some animals are like to hang out with other animals and they form these big worm feeding groups and other animals are much more solitary. They just forage off on their own. And we mapped, we asked, like, what is it? Do they not smell each other? What's going on? What's the difference? And we found that there are genes that make some animals more solitary and some animals more sociable. And then we use those to tease it apart and realize that every animal can switch between being solitary and sociable. And mm -hmm. that when animals are stressed, they become more sociable. So oh. we started to see all of a sudden that now the behavior is not just the hardwired good neurons and bad neurons and good smells and bad smells. Now it's the smell of other animals is good when you're stressed. The smell of other animals maybe not so good when you're relaxed. And that changes the behavior. This is so interesting. Isn't it? This is fascinating. Yeah. These kinds of motivational states, I think, are really amazing. And they underlie our own behaviors in important ways that we still don't fully understand. I'll give you a really simple example. So, again, start with a sense of smell. Um, I smell food cooking on the grill. If I'm sitting right here and it's, I'm not really hungry, it's a nice smell. I appreciate it aesthetically. If I'm really hungry, it's really motivating. You know, I turn toward it. I, it starts to modify my behavior instantly. And if I'm sick, if I've just had like a stomach bug or something, I have a wave of nausea and I avoid it. Mm. So I'm not thinking about that. My own motivational state has been, is changing based on my physiology in ways I'm not even conscious of that change whether I think a smell is nice, a smell is fabulous, or a smell is terrible all at the same time. And it's this kind of rewiring that I just find fascinating. And we don't know how it works.
When we come back, Corey Bargman tells about blowing up a toilet in the boys' bathroom in the eighth grade and how there's a link between that and leading a scientific effort to cure, prevent, or manage all diseases by the end of the century. The sponsor of Clear and Vivid is the Kavli Foundation, a partner in the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. The 2020 Kavli Prize laureates were announced on May 27th, with the participation of the World Science Festival and the festival's co-founder, Brian Green, You can watch the announcement and meet this year's winners, as well as learn more about the history of the Kavli Prize at kavliprize.org. That's K-A-V-L-I prize.org. The Kavli Prize is a partnership between the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the Kavli Foundation, In some future episodes of Clear and Vivid, I'll be talking with several other Kavli Prize laureates, and I'll be exploring with them the very big, our universe, the very small, the realm of atoms and molecules, and the very complex, the brain and the nervous system. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free, but you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. 
Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the neighborhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the neighborhood," she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus. Hmm? You're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Corey Bargman and the story behind that exploding toilet. You're, you're such a good communicator in addition to being such an extraordinary scientist. And what I love is you... you there. In interviews I've seen you give, you don't shy away from fun facts about your own life. Did you, in the eighth grade, did you blow up a toilet? I did not. You know, science is always collaboration. <laughs> you, you had somebody else to blame it on. <laughs> it wasn't just me who blew up the toilet. <laughs> it, was, it was your partner, right? But, you just drove the getaway but, car. Yeah. But a number of us in our earth science class were absolutely electrified by hearing that sodium would explode in water. And there was sodium in the earth science lab, and we decided to do an experiment to see if that was really true. And we stole the sodium from the earth science lab, which was not good behavior, and then flushed it into the toilet in the boys' room behind the gym. And it blew the toilet off the wall, and that was very exciting. (laughs) See, see how much fun that fact is. <laughs> and we had to pay for the toilet. <laughs> oh, you did? And um, I'm still friends with one of the toilet protagonists all these years later. Have you cooked up any other schemes? Since no, then? We, have, we, we got that out of our system. But that's an example of why science is so compelling. Because you learn something and that enables you to do something you couldn't do before. And right now, I'm a biomedical scientist, and we try to learn things about biology and about the brain, and that enables us to do something in, sometimes in medicine, not always, but sometimes. And you learn things about the physical world, and that enables scientists to do things like, like go to the moon, or blow things up, or, or you know, that, that all of these kind of amazing technologies we have are, are built on discoveries that come from science. And it's that immediacy that makes science different from other forms of knowledge. It's this idea that you transform thought and understanding into reality, into a relationship with something you do with your hands and observe. And that moment, I mean, what you're describing was really the moment of discovery in a way that you had, even though it was a known property of of uh, sodium mixed with water, it was a personal discovery for you to see how it really worked and what power was in that. And up until then, it had been a formula or something uh, written in a book. And to to realize the um, the, the the real reality of it. It must be at the heart of all of your work, of all of science, because you're discovering stuff about nature that 
we didn't have our hands on before. I'm wondering about your present role. It sounds to me like you have the toughest job in the world, at least with regard to the goal that was set by the founders early on. I'm talking about the Trans Zuckerberg Initiative. Yeah, I, my current and the, the goal. The goal was. Just let me say the <laughs> goal, as I understand it. I want to know what your reaction to it is to to cure or prevent all disease by the year 2100. Yes, is that is that even possible? So the 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 stated goal of the Trans Zuckerberg Science Initiative is to support science and technology that will make it possible to cure, prevent, or manage all diseases by the end of the century. And when Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan first told me that that was what they wanted their science initiative to do, I thought to myself, well, that's a big task. But I want to say a couple of things about that. I just want to take a step back and look at the last century and how much science and medicine has advanced in that time. So let's look back 100 years. Let's look back to 1920. Well, in 1920, there are no antibiotics. If you get a bacterial disease, you just die. So now we have antibiotics and we can cure the diseases that are caused by bacteria. In 1920, we didn't have chemotherapy for cancer. The only treatment for cancer was to cut it out. And if that didn't work, that was over. We developed chemotherapy as a field, and now there are increasingly subtle and powerful ways of treating cancer that are much less toxic, like the new immuno-oncology drugs. In 1920, we didn't know that high blood pressure and high cholesterol were risks for heart attack and cardiovascular disease. And now we have statins and blood pressure-lowering drugs, and not to mention things like stents and valve replacements and things like that that can be used to, that can be used to manage cardiovascular disease and prevent cardiovascular disease. We didn't know that smoking caused cancer. Now we can prevent those cancers by preventing smoking. So I think if you look at what science and medicine have been able to do in the past hundred years, there's no reason not to be optimistic that they can't continue to do more. And there are areas where we've made tremendous progress, and there are areas where we still have a lot to do. There are whole classes of diseases that we are not very good at preventing or curing or managing like neurodegenerative diseases. There are diseases that are harder. Um, We know that the the easy problems are probably solved, and so now we have to solve the hard problems. But science has gotten more sophisticated. Medicine has gotten more sophisticated. I don't think there's any reason to think that we can't make the same kind of progress in the next hundred years as has happened in the last hundred. And it's probably probably motivating in a in a big way to have such a challenge like the challenge president kennedy gave the country to put a person on the moon it seemed impossible when i first heard it and then we saw it 
Yes. A challenge is a good frame. If you know what your goal is, you can start to say what steps you want to take. So, for example, if we want to say that we want to study all diseases, that changes our perspective from if we wanted to study a particular disease. We start to ask, what kinds of science and technology will help all diseases? And to give you an example of that, um, one of the very first projects we've been supporting that we're really excited about is a project to identify all of the cell types in the human body. So we don't have a parts list of the human body. It's embarrassing. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and hey, that's news to me. I, I would have thought that would, that would have been a, an early effort. We're still discovering, well, you know, we know that there are heart cells and muscle cells and bone cells, but it turns out that there are many, many different kinds of these cells. There are many, many different kinds of nerve cells in the brain, for example. And we're still discovering new cells in the brain, in the immune system. And one of the things the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative said is, well, every disease has a cellular basis. You know, the cell is the basic unit of life, and every disease happens because some cell in your body is either not doing what it's supposed to do or it's doing something that it's not supposed to do. If we have a complete roster of those cells, if we know what kinds there are and how many of each and who their neighbors are and what genes are active in each cell, that will give us a basis to understand every disease. And that sounds pretty aspirational, but a lot of people were very excited about it. We supported their work. We've started to get them together to start to build these cell atlases. And then three years into this work, which were, we really believe in, all of a sudden, a new virus appears. And that new virus is SARS-CoV-2, which is leading to the current COVID-19 outbreak. So here's a new disease, and scientists turn to the results of the human cell atlas and they were able to look at the human cell atlas of healthy people, people whose cells were studied before the SARS-CoV-2 virus even existed in a human population. And they said, hey, in the lungs, the following cells look like they are, are susceptible to this virus. They were able to use that knowledge as a basis for jumping ahead in our understanding of the virus, to jump ahead to which cells were being attacked and therefore which parts of lung function are abnormal. So that may seem like a, it's a first step toward understanding a disease that's based on a general foundation that everyone can build on. And it feels like a real, it feels like a real um, confirmation of the idea that this kind of a, a basic science can then accelerate any disease. There's now a big site called the COVID Cell Atlas that's being put together by the people who've been building this human cell atlas with all the different cell types that we think that this virus can infect so that people can now use that as a basis to move forward. And again, so we can build on each other's work. About how many kinds of cells have been identified? Well, scientists can definitely get into arguments about What's a different cell type? And how sharp is the boundary between this cell type and that cell type? And we can talk about that for a really long time. But I think it's pretty clear that there are going to be, you know, thousands of cell types. You know, my bet is 10,000. Probably nobody knows how many 
your your goal is, how many your endpoint will be. It's like the guy who wrote to McDonald's and said, I saw a sign that you sold five billion hamburgers. How many are left? <laughs> well, to give you an example of a cell type that's in the human brain, there are 86 billion cells and about 20,000 of them, which is a very small number, make a particular molecule called orexin or hypocretin. And if those cells are malfunctioning, that leads to a disease called narcolepsy cataplexy, which is mm. a complicated sleep disorder. Um, and the thing that's amazing about that is that this is such a rare cell type. And yet, if those 20,000 cells are gone, the other 86 billion cells can't keep you awake. Uh, so it's worth well, finding out what these rare cell types are. It's worth finding yeah. out what their specific functions are. So tell me, but getting back to the Chan Zuckerberg initiative, you're covering the waterfront, it seems. It's a very broad approach. What strategies do you have to make this initiative work? We have a strong strategy that involves tool building, developing tools and resources. We think that those have not always been as well supported as they should be in science, but they can be incredibly powerful. And an example of a tool that's been unbelievably powerful in science is the human genome. That once we have references of the human genome, then everyone can study any gene in the human genome so much more easily than they could before. And we want to take that idea and apply it to other problems. Where else can we create references? Where else can we create tools and resources for many people to use? And that's something that we feel that we can specialize in, especially because we're in Silicon Valley and many of the modern tools involve computer science and they involve computational and analytical methods for studying large data sets. And we can build those internally and make those available to science. So again, there's there the idea is to try to think about things that'll have an impact across many, many different areas and try to build those out as something that many people can use. That's one of our important strategies. Another important strategy we have is helping people to collaborate, helping people to make connections between different disciplines. And one of the ways that we've been doing that is starting by starting a research institute where we were bringing together scientists and engineers, the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub in the San Francisco Bay Area, that brings together people from different disciplines to work together on problems. We're doing that also at a virtual level. We're trying to ask, can we bring people together from different disciplines so that they can learn from each other and really deeply understand each other's needs and capabilities. And we do that specifically, we've been thinking about how to do that with respect to technology and biology. How do you connect experimental biology to computer science? How do you talk to each other? How do you define a question that you can work together to answer? We're bringing doctors in because we really care about medicine and what the problems are in medicine. And we've been finding it really exciting to bring patients into the discussion as well, not as research subjects, but as, as full participants, as even the drivers of research who help to pose the questions that move the science forward. 
that seems so important that it seems like a, a growing approach to creating uh, medicines, medicinal responses to disease, to collaborate with with the patient. Yes, and find out the patient's perspective on it. Yes, my my inspiration here is the amazing Nancy Wexler, whose work on Huntington's disease, starting as a patient, as or as the family member of a patient, I should say, bringing together scientists who would not have thought about that problem, seeing the opportunities in genetics to move that problem forward, and bringing the voice of the patient, the experience of the patient, and really the compelling story of the patient to the scientists to make them, inspire them to do this work, to inspire them to work together in ways that they might not have done before. That's great. So we have, a, we have a new program at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, again, where we're thinking across many diseases, what can we do that's important? And we realize that inflammation is a really important part of many, many diseases, the sort of secondary inflammatory responses that lead to that where the body is essentially attacking itself. And um, we had a patient come and speak at the meeting of the scientists that we've started to fund in this area. And she got more questions and more discussion and more ideas than any other talk at the meeting. People were absolutely just galvanized and electrified by her participation. And I think that's... Isn't that great? Yeah. And I think that's the that's something that we can bring to, to the discussion to put together people in our new virtual world where you don't have to travel across the country to start to talk to someone with a different perspective. This is so great. I could talk to you about your work all day, and I almost have. <laughs> so it's, I think we have to bring it to a close. But we always, we always end our, our conversations with seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers. Okay. And they're, they're tame questions, but they're roughly about communication. What do you wish you really understood? I really want to understand how the brain works. There's no bigger question to me. I'm lucky because I could spend my whole life thinking about exactly the thing I really want to understand. Uh, yeah, that's great. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? You don't tell someone they have their facts wrong. You ask them why they think this, how they learn this, what makes them say that, and engage them in a dialogue to see whether you might be wrong instead. Oh, great. What a good answer. I love that. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Someone sent me an email asking me whether we couldn't just solve the problem of the brain by making edible dictionaries so everyone would understand everything. <laughs> And that's the strangest question I've ever heard. <laughs> okay, next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Gosh. When you find out, let me know. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'll move on to the next one. You're at a dinner party. You're sitting next to someone you don't know, you've never met before. How do you strike up a real conversation with that person? Tell me what you're most excited about. People love to talk about what makes them excited. 
It's very close to what I do, but that's not, so I'm, uh, I know what you mean. What gives you confidence? What gives me confidence is feeling like I've thought through something and gotten advice from the right people. That puts me on the right footing. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? The Brothers Karamazov. Yes? yes. Why? Because the Brothers K brought to life the life of the mind and the way it connects to the life of human beings in a way that somehow had, and the life of ethics that suddenly became something that was real to the people involved. I It's, it's hard to explain, um, but I will say that I was madly in love with Ivan Karamazov for several years after reading it. <laughs> now, I thought, sure, you were going to say a different book. I thought you were going to say a book by Conrad Lorenz, which your mother read to you, what, when you were five? Yes. In, Ger- in German. Yes, indeed. My mother read Conrad Lorenz and Karl von Frisch to me in German when I was a child. And maybe that was the tiny spark that started me on the road to where I am today. All about behavior and animals and... And bees, how bees do the waggle dance, how yeah. imprinting of geese. Those are wonderful stories. Well, your story is wonderful, too. Thank you for sharing it with us today. You're, it's just great. Thanks so much for being available. To it's this. wonderful to see you, and I look forward to seeing you in person. Me, too. Yes. Bye-bye, Corey. Bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Corey Bargman is the Torsten Wiesel Professor at Rockefeller University. You can explore her research interests at her lab webpage at rockefeller.edu. She's also the head of science at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Corey is a Kavli Prize winner in neuroscience in 2012. And you can follow her on Twitter at betnoir one That's at B-E-T-E-N-O-I-R-E-1. And our Patreon subscribers can check out video of Corey telling me about her discovery of a gene causing an obscure cancer in rats, led some years and many other researchers later, to a breakthrough treatment for breast cancer. She also tells me how many times glasses would clink when six people around the dinner table clink them. There's no end to Corey Bargman's discoveries. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends. 
Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Next in our series of conversations, I explore what makes a good interview with someone who is a consummate interviewer, CNN's Jake Tapper. How do you handle somebody who clearly doesn't want to answer your question? You can ask the same question once or twice more. Do you have a limit where you say, well, I'm just not going to go past three times because <laughs> it's getting us nowhere? Or do you, do you bald-facedly call them out? Normally, uh, I'll say something like, okay, well, you're not answering the question, but I don't want to waste my viewer's time or something like that. Or if they, if they vaguely come in the neighborhood of answering it, then I might just move on. But it's tough. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult to do and you really have to fortify yourself and it's exhausting you know i really got to eat my wheaties if i'm expecting a tough one but this next clear and vivid has a twist jake tapper turns the tables and interviews me what do you remember like what is the most vivid memory you have of making mash and i realize it's an 11 year experience with lots of different people but do you have like one vivid memory or a few vivid memories do you remember feeling how it felt to see an episode that you had written on TV? Was that, did that bring you more pleasure? To hear my answers and my questions, you'll have to come back next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.